2: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium, ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada. And of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to CanadaLand.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Matea Roach and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and me complaining about how going to the dentist is too expensive and I don't think I should have to pay for it. Canada's new and exciting dental plan, or am I actually excited about it? The NDP are patting themselves on the back for getting something done in Ottawa, but how much have they really accomplished? And also, old immigration policies repackaged and branded as new. Sounds like Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada to me. Joining me this week, we have an inside look on Parliament Hill, Nick taylor Vassy, reporter at Politico. Nice to meet you.
3: Nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: The one, the only, the Stuart Thompson, Editor-in-Chief at The Hub. Hello. (laughs) Hey, guys. Last episode, we said we could not get enough of this person, and now we're really living up to that statement. Riley Yesno, writer and U of T PhD candidate. Welcome again. Hello. Let's get into it.
1: As promised earlier this year, we're moving forward on dental care. I'm pleased with the progress our government continues to make on this front as we develop and take necessary steps to put in place a robust, sustainable, long-term dental care program for Canadians.
2: So Parliament is back in session, and up first we have the long-awaited dental plan rollout. This is actually just the first part of a three-part dental plan rollout that was unveiled recently as part of the Liberal government's cost-of-living plan. You'd be forgiven for thinking that a new dental plan might apply to all Canadians, but this first phase is actually just for children who are uninsured. It applies to children between the ages of two and 12 and is a two-year annual benefit worth between $260 and $600 for those who qualify, depending on the household income of their parents. Parents will actually still need to pay out of pocket for services, however, and then they'll submit their receipts to an online Canada Revenue Agency portal, so surely no one's gonna have a problem dealing with that. This program's being billed as an interim measure and is expected to be expanded in the coming years. This plan is a pillar of the Liberal NDP agreement, which was struck back in March in an effort to keep the Liberal minority government in power until 2025, as long as there's action taken on NDP priorities. It's also important to note that some provinces, including but not limited to Quebec, already have some amount of dental coverage for basic services for children, and some provincial leaders are not too happy about this new dental plan. So, Riley, this is a big question, considering that the plan contains many different clauses and confusing elements for perhaps the layperson, but can you give us a rundown of what this new dental care plan actually looks like? The thing I was first struck
0: by when I saw it was that the parents' collective income has to come to about $90,000, and anything over $90,000, your children would no longer qualify for this benefit. And that, to me, was already striking. Not that $90,000 is a household income to scoff at by any means, but that I think it severely underestimates the cost of living in Canada's largest, most populous urban centres, of which around 90000 is kind of like the benchmark if you have any kids at all. So like that's an income that would be like you are just making the living salary. And so I feel like that's going to pose a bit of a problem. We're going to see people start slipping through the cracks in that regard. Another thing that I was just really struck by in terms of the politics of this all, I think, is that I feel like it was a really bad move personally for the NDP in this, to see this incrementalist kind of approach to dental care be coming out. I think especially coming out of the pandemic, coming with a conservative opposition that is really hard on them for saying that, like, they're not actually doing anything for improving, you know, the lives of Canadians, to do this, like, little piecemeal sort of thing is going to, I think, really cause problems for the Liberals and the NDP going into this term.
2: Yeah. So I think that this sort of politicization of the bill from all corners and, you know, is this actually a good strategic move for the NDP and the liberals? How are conservatives going to kind of make hay out of it is something that we probably will get into a lot. And that dovetails really nicely into just sort of my next question. So, Stuart, can you tell us a little bit more about what we're hearing from different political parties on this bill? Because I think that from what I've seen so far, at least, uh, Pierre Poiliev in his kind of early days as new conservative leader is using this as an opportunity to basically accuse the liberals and the NDP of like, not having their priorities straight, perhaps overreaching and that sort of thing.
1: So I think Riley is right about the political calculations here, but the NDP is in a really tough spot because they set this deadline, might have been a bad decision to set the deadline, but it's set. So now they have to deal with that. They have the choice of letting the liberals blow the deadline and maybe doing a better program or not doing incrementally in this way. But then they appear feckless or even more feckless, depending on how you see the NDP. And then you're right, that does kind of add to Pierre Polyev's criticism of this. And this is a criticism that is not unique to the dental care program. This is something he's been saying. It's a pretty effective message, I think, and it really worked in the leadership campaign. I assume he's going to run with it, which is that government should do a few things well rather than a lot of things poorly. So here's the question. Why would we trust
3: this government to create new programs when it can't run the programs it already has?
1: And I wonder about Prime Minister Trudeau's commitment to this program. I've read convincing cases for both sides of this, which is that he wants to uh, keep the NDP on board so that he can do other things that he actually cares about, or that he sees this and other you know sort of social welfare programs as part of a domestic policy legacy that you know when you look back on the Trudeau government we're already at 7 years now and you have to accumulate these things incrementally but that could be his legacy and you know you can add that to the Canada child benefit as these programs that have made a big difference in Canadian life you know particularly for low income people so i think there is a case to be made for that but the way this is rolling out there's so many opportunities for calamity here. Uh, once you start involving like private insurers and provincial governments, who I think at all costs, every single premier in Canada is go- looking to minimize downside risk from this. They don't want any problems that fall on their lap. And so they're gonna be a little bit, uh, I don't wanna say obstructive, but you know it might come down to that, where they just don't want any risk from this. They would prefer cash. and. You know, Jagmeet Singh has already made it clear that he's not in favor of that. He doesn't want just cash to the provinces. So this is a hard thing. It's a hard thing for the government to manage. And because they had to work towards this deadline and they've sort of rolled this program out in this sort of piecemeal, not even piecemeal because this is just sort of a a temporary measure that will then become a bigger program. The political problems that could potentially come from this are huge. But there's obviously the political upside to providing dental care to people who need it.
2: Yeah. So I think one of the things that's kind of remarkable to me and like what I first sort of was drawn to when I saw the rollout of this, you know, first part of the plan was just the amount of different actors that are involved in keeping it together. So, you know, Stuart, like mentioned private insurers, mentioned the provinces. Uh, We also have the Canada Revenue Agency that's getting involved because they're going to be the agency that's receiving basically, I guess, receipts for, you know, people having gone to the dentist and then, you know, making payouts. So so, Nick, I know some people in the dental community, so to speak, like the Canadian Dental Association, have called this program game-changing. And I don't want to discount, you know, the impact that this will have on some people who currently can't afford dental care, but how do you see this actually working out in practice? Like, is it really going to be able to deliver this as a necessary service to people who really need it?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question about the Canada Revenue Agency and human beings who pay taxes and who have to deal with the CRA, we we learned that the federal government's very good at sending money to people with no strings attached on an emergency basis with the CERB. And uh, now, two years later, we're dealing with sort of the other end of that policy, which is to say the government's now dealing with kind of going after people who either receive money they shouldn't have. Maybe they knew they were receiving the money they shouldn't have. Maybe they were abusing the program. Maybe they weren't. But the complication of that seemingly simple policy becomes clear only after uh, a lot of time has passed and people have had time to reflect and the CRA has had time to really get a sense of the landscape. The dental care program, even its first phase, which is just dipping its toes into the not even a—it's not even a program, right? As as Stuart mentioned, it's a—it's a temporary benefit that will make way for the next phase, and then maybe the next phase after that, uh, if the government survives that long, requires a lot more paperwork. And one comment that stuck out to me uh, when the uh, bill first uh, hit the order paper in the House of Commons came from Jennifer Robson. At Carleton University and she she looked at some of the decisions that the CRA is going to have to make and that their kind of frontline customer service folks and and the verification people are going to have to make which is to say they're going to have to make decisions and judgments about family issues like which parent who is party to a, a separation agreement with another parent is responsible for for dental care in a shared custody agreement. And uh, these are just really complicated questions that that Robson said will position the CRA as a social worker, which is not what the CRA is good at, far from it. So the implementation, I think, is still really unclear in a lot of ways what exact role the CRA will will play and how much work it's going to be and how many questions there are going to be and how many people will actually end up taking the time to fill out the paperwork, because that's, of course the big question with a, a program like this that came together pretty quickly. Stuart mentioned the, the Canada Child Benefit, which, which I think is a fair comparator in a lot of ways, but also that was a signature policy of the Trudeau government that came together after a lot of policy development, a lot of big brains, an election campaign in 2015. This dental care came together in a few months after an agreement was slapped together with the NDP and then public servants and politicians all summer just tried to figure out how to make it actually palatable. When you make policy like that in Ottawa, I think you you leave a lot of loopholes, not to say it opens the program up for abuse necessarily, but just a lot of question marks and a lot of confusion and maybe not a whole lot of take up at the end of the day, depending on the first weeks and months and, and whether or not people even know if they qualify for this.
0: I just really agree with like a lot of it. It's what I've been thinking about is like. The best way to make sure Intermeasure turns into, like, long-lasting, robust policy is to make sure that people, as soon as it's released, access it, have really fond interactions with the system, and then feel like it's working really well for them. And then it creates a grassroots level of support for it, such that all the parties go there and they're like, well, it absolutely has to happen. It makes me really fear for the longevity of the program if you can't get people accessing these services and liking them right away.
2: Mm -hmm. I know, like, there are so many people who just... Avoid doing things like filing for rebates that they're owed with the CRA just because the bureaucratic processes that you have to go through in order to get the money that you basically are owed through government programs are so difficult. Considering that this is a program that is supposed to help, you know, in theory, people who are some of the most vulnerable maybe don't have access to a computer to even like log on to my account to file receipts, maybe don't have like the language proficiency required to actually interact with the CRA if needed. And like Nick mentioned, all of these Sorts of issues that you can run into where the CRA is now having to make decisions that involve like family structure. I just wonder if it wouldn't have been perhaps better for everybody involved to not do such like a means-tested bureaucratic plan. Stuart, you mentioned during your remarks sort of this issue with like provinces and to what extent this is going to maybe step on the toes of provincial responsibility to provide dental care and other forms of health care. So Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchet called it basically this program, a pseudo-dental insurance program that's not really a dental insurance program because it doesn't even necessarily cover the full amount that it's going to cost for some of the dental services encompassed under it. Quebec is one of the provinces that already has a dental care plan in place specifically for kids, which is who this part of the Liberal Party's plan is targeting. So what does this plan mean for the provinces, and how do you see this affecting the way that the provinces do or don't provide dental care going forward?
1: What will happen is we will have different situations in every province because it will come down to how much each premier or how much each government... Is committed to the idea. And you can kind of see this. I don't know if anyone out there has kids in daycare, but in Ontario, the new daycare program that was negotiated with the feds, it's just rumbling along. And, you know, we've been sitting here. I've got a two-year-old in daycare. There's some sense that we're going to get a rebate at some point. No one's said anything to me. I keep Googling for news stories on it, and there's not a whole lot out there. Um, I I'm pretty sure from what I've read that there's a lump sum coming to a lot of people at some point, but we're just kind of in the dark and it's really strange. And part of this is just this sort of vagaries of a program that goes from the feds to the province to the municipalities. And then everyone um, tries to push down problems to the lower level. And of course, all those problems accumulate and then just takes longer than you would think. And part of the issue with healthcare is that the federal government can provide a lot of money and they can say, hey, we would love it if you spent it on this. Or they could say, hey, we're requiring that you spend it on this. But they don't really have a lot of mechanisms to make sure the provinces do that. And, you know, the big mechanism is that they hold back large swaths of funding. But how many prime ministers want to be holding back healthcare funding in large amounts at any point, never mind during a pandemic. So it's hard. It's really, really hard. And this is, you know, some people would see this as a good thing that the feds can't interfere too much in sort of provincial ideas of how to do health care or dental care or whatever. But it does create political issues. And it does create problems for a prime minister or even an opposition party who has a deal with the government trying to claim political success from this when the policy success is different from province to province.
2: You know, we've talked about provinces. We've talked a little bit about how this is perhaps going to be leveraged by the conservatives. Uh, What we haven't talked about quite as much as yet is like, what does this actually mean for the NDP? Because I know, Riley, in some of your remarks, and I think like Nick Stewart, all of us have kind of touched on this. Like, Dental care has been like a huge thing that the NDP has campaigned on for the longest time. And basically, it's one of the sort of things that they were dangling over the liberals in this sort of coalition, not a coalition type arrangement of we really want to get this done.
1: We're proud that we're able to use our power to get something meaningful for Canadians, to force this government to do something meaningful for Canadians.
2: Nick, we're finally seeing movement on dental care. In theory, this is good for the NDP, and I think they've been kind of framing this as a big accomplishment. But do we think that this sort of incrementalist approach is actually going to be good enough for NDP voters? And how is this going to, you know, affect things going forward, I guess, in terms of like the way this coalition works or the NDP's electoral fortunes, perhaps?
3: I mean, it depends how long the government survives, right? If the government falls next spring, if that were to happen, then you would have a a much different dental care, whatever this is, than you would maybe a year later or a year after that. And so if there's a fully formed three phase dental care program where some of the kinks have been ironed out by 2025 and there's an election then, then maybe the NDP would make a play to say, hey, we were the driving force behind creating this very cool, very successful program that's helped a lot of kids and then other other people, because it just starts with kids under 12, but then it, it expands more broadly get dental care and uh, maybe it won't pay for all of it, but it'll pay for the basics. And that may be an argument they can make. I'm curious what other folks here think, but it seems like from what the NDP is talking about that whatever else is in this agreement, dental care is going to be it. Like PharmaCare is going to be part of this and it may be a dominant debate at some point in 2023 because that's another piece of that deal that has a timeline attached to it. But that dental care is really going to be the the checkpoint from here on out that matters. It's sort of a a waiting game for them. I mean, you're going to talk to a lot of people, I think, in Ottawa who will say that no matter what happens, the NDP will never get credit for the the good here and they'll only ever get credit for the bad. Uh, And maybe the Liberals get credit for the bad as well. And then that means Pierre Pauli of the unstoppable machine will become Prime Minister. (laughs) But I I think a lot of it might depend uh, in certain seats where the NDP is competitive, downtown places across Canada, a successful program might turn the tide, you know, maybe down the road. But I don't know. I, it's a tough thing for them, no matter what. Also, largely because from now until the end of this deal, unless their fortunes improve for some reason or another, they're always going to be at a disadvantage. They they're not going to be able to raise the same amount of money as the other parties. Uh, they're not competitive. It is in as many places in Canada, even in the best case scenario, uh, and so they're always going to be fighting from behind. And uh, that's just you know that's a disadvantage they've lived with their entire life as a party going back to 1962 when they first promised dental care as a party in that first campaign.
2: I will say Pierre Poiliev, The Unstoppable Machine, sounds like a cartoon I do not really want to watch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Riley, to close things out, do you have any thoughts about what this means for the NDP going forward? For context, like most of my circles
0: end up being like I would say, reluctant NDP supporters in that, like, they would consider themselves leftists. And so the NDP would be probably the best party for them, but also really hate the way the leadership runs things and have a lot of critiques of it. And for those camps of people, I think that this does not bode well for the NDP.
2: <laughs> Stuart, any final thoughts from you?
1: Uh, yeah, quickly. It is interesting when you guys put it this way. It does kind of remind you that the way that Justin Trudeau came to power was by looking like a bonafide. fide leftist legalizing weed and running deficits and advocating for proportional representation but doing those things that were genuinely to the left of the NDP and does the center does like the blue liberal who cares about fiscal uh, issues does that still exist anymore or is it okay just to be in your camp and then Pierre Polyev will be in his camp and then that's how the electorate breaks down but in that world there's not a lot of room for the NDP.
0: Speaker,
2: I have a point of order. All right, Riley, what's your point of order?
0: My point of order is that I believe now nobody from U of T political science take away my card for this, but all municipal politics elections are happening across Ontario right now, right? There's a lot of municipal <laughs> politics happening right now. <laughs> and <laughs> I specifically wanted to highlight that I am finding so frustrating is that is anybody have any sense of where municipal politics are going down that it isn't just so demoralizing? Like, I've been trying to keep in touch with my like, you know, local politics in the north in northern Ontario, really important policy stuff happening up that way right now. And the candidates are just so disappointing to me and no new faces, no young faces. There's so many things about it that, like, I wish if I had a magic wand, I could change. And I don't know, is this why I haven't at least been hearing a lot about local politics these days? Point of order.
2: <laughs> Not a point of order, but I will note you can keep your U of T policy card as one reluctant U of T policy alumnus to another. It is everywhere on in Ontario. What's happening in Toronto municipal elections? What's happening in Ottawa municipal elections? Like, really, who's to say? I know Gil Penalosa is riding his bike around town, and that's really all I can tell you about what's happening in Toronto.
1: Panel Speaker, I have a point of order. Uh,
2: yeah, Stuart, what's your point of order?
1: Don't want to get too optimistic on the pod, and I know that I have predicted this before and been embarrassed by it, but uh, something kind of leading from the dental care debate is that we may have an actual battle of ideas in Ottawa. And maybe the next election will be a real actual policy, ideological battle where we actually talk about, you know, the role of government. Something Pierre Polyev is doing is he's focusing that. What is the role of government? What should it do? What can it do? And the liberal government is doing things like daycare, dental care, stuff that the liberals never really had the guts to do before now. And, you know, whatever side you're on, that's cool. It's cool to have that discussion, and I hope we can do it properly, although I have clearly just jinxed it now.
2: <laughs> Not a point of order, but I think we're allowed to be aspirational sometimes, so let's hopefully you know, manifest and speak this into existence, that we're going to have an actual battle of ideas in Ottawa. Who would have thought? I didn't know such a thing was possible.
3: Speaker, I have a point of order.
2: Yeah, Nick, what's your point of order?
3: We are barreling towards what they call the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa. The hearings into the blockades at border crossings earlier this year and, of course, the messiness in downtown Ottawa. And I am just like really dreading the tone and the content of almost all of it. I think there are real questions, of course, to be asked and answered. The parliamentary committee is currently also looking into the Public Order Emergency Commission. There have been many debates in many places in the last seven or eight months about it. I think a public inquiry is the kind of place where we expect like a judge to be at the front of the room and keep things really professional and maybe a little staid. I feel like there's no chance of that this time. I may be a pessimist and I'm really not looking forward to it, but I'm also at the same time on the other half of my brain, really looking forward to it.
2: Uh, Yeah, not a point of order, (laughs) but as Marie Kondo once said, I love mess. So perhaps it could be messy and interesting, uh, but perhaps this is also not where we're going to look to see this intense high level battle of ideas that Stuart hopes we're going to see in Ottawa going forward. On September 20th, during a House of Commons proceeding, Sean Fraser, Canada's immigration minister, tabled a brand new immigration strategy. Unfortunately, the phrase brand new here is less of an accurate descriptor of the strategy and perhaps more of an aspirational label. The new strategy contains largely restated policy changes that had already been made or already put into place during the pandemic. We're talking about raising annual targets of permanent residents, changing the selection system for skilled immigration, enhancing economic immigration programs, and continuing to digitize and modernize the immigration system. Meh. I only say meh because this comes after a wave of migrants across Canada have called on Ottawa to take action and extend permanent resident status to undocumented people. There was nothing offered for undocumented residents in the new strategy Fraser proposed, despite the fact that the mandate letter given to him after taking on this new position placed the expectation that he would explore ways of regularizing status for undocumented workers. The strategy itself notes that temporary foreign workers can be exploited, forced to work long hours in unsafe conditions for low wages, and for undocumented folks, all of these problems are just that much worse. So this plan outlines the problem facing temporary foreign workers, undocumented workers, and all of these groups, but is lacking in actual concrete solutions. Did Sean Fraser not get the memo, is he ignoring it, and just hoping that people won't notice? What's going on here? Stuart, can you walk me through this new strategy, if it even is a new strategy? Are there any changes that have been made to kind of Canada's existing immigration regime? Anything new and notable that we should know about?
1: I guess what I would do is tie this into this government's sort of broader disposition towards immigration, which is that they wanted to boost it. And then the pandemic hit and it became very hard to get people to come to Canada because we weren't letting them in. I think part of this is that making temporary residents into permanent residents was sort of a policy innovation that came of the pandemic to just get those numbers up. And if I were to offer a cynical explanation for why the undocumented stuff has been kind of dropped, it's that during the pandemic, the policy goal of getting people to become permanent residents was really a pressing need and now it's no longer a pressing need. There is, I think, some political gain for the government to turn temporary residents who are here you know, on visas or whatever, student visas, stuff like that. People who are working in industries that are really important right now, like healthcare. Converting those people to permanent residents made a lot of sense and is politically fine. Nobody's going to object to that. Undocumented people, though, it's not as easy as a political magic hat trick. And I wonder if maybe they just kind of wanted this to go by the wayside because it's not as pressing right now. You can bring in people through the conventional means just like normal. The conversion from temporary to permanent, I think they're actually intrigued by that. I think that made a lot of sense and especially makes sense now that we're short on healthcare workers. We're short on other industries where you can bring people in, but there's just not a lot of gain.
2: So it seems like we're seeing action, you know, continuing on some things, but then other groups of people, like specifically undocumented workers, kind of being dropped, perhaps for cynical political reasons, perhaps because of like genuinely the government feeling like there's less of a pressing need to fix it, although I'm sure that those people would not agree that it's not pressing. Riley, are there any other groups like students that are sort of encompassed within this strategy? How are things changing for them? The short answer to that is
0: is not very, <laughs> not very much. In the report, when they focus on international students, they mention how much, first of all, that international students contribute to Canada, to the Canadian economy, how well in addition to like going to school here and getting degrees here, that they contribute a lot of hours to workforces on campuses and in close to, to university centers. And then they go on to say that, you know, we want to extend the benefit of... Um, you know, after they graduate, that you can have like a, basically a continued work permit for some time after your graduation. And so they say that that's really successful and they want to keep doing that is kind of the, the general <laughs> sense I got from them. Right. But what I think is so jarring when I was reading it, at least, is that in the like the very bottom sentence of that section, they also say, we do recognize that there are some problems. They don't say what those problems are with this program and that we're concerned about them and we we're concerned about student exploitation and like, then it's gone. And then they're like, on to the next section. <laughs> and I was like, what? Did anybody just catch that? That they just acknowledge that there are serious concerns there, that students, at least in, in some, you know, conversations that they're having are, are being exploited, which is something that, you know, I would also say to know to be true. And there's nothing there in terms of how they plan to address that. It reads as if they think that the concerns these students has, the exploitation they're facing is less important than having them, you know, be able to stay in Canada for another year or so and work postgraduate. Which I think not a great look.
2: Yeah. Again, I think it's an issue where it's like for the government, perhaps they have this sense that like as long as people are able to stay here, then like anything that happens after the point that they're here is like basically their problem and they did their bit. But at the end of the day, it's like If you're allowing people to immigrate to your country and attain some sort of permanent residency and that you're then allowing them to work in conditions that like you probably would not let Canadian citizens work in, like you actually are not really doing justice to those people. That would be my hot take on that situation.
3: When I knew we were going to be talking about this particular subject today, I I thought back to a, a trip early this year when I ended up in Leamington, Ontario, which is a place when you drive through town. It's really curious if you're unaware of the context, because in Leamington, which is a town of I think twelve thousand people in Canada's deep, deep, deep south, there's a Mexican consulate, and then you drive into the, you know, into like a just a regular plaza, and there's a lot of Spanish language signs for you know things like money transfer uh, shops, and as it turns out, of course, once you look into it even a little more deeply than that, you you know that this is a center for migrant workers, and then when you talk to People who, who live and work there, whether they're migrant workers or not, you learn that there are the 2,000, that's sort of the, the going estimate, but it's like in the thousands of undocumented workers. But when you see the signs and the infrastructure, you realize how permanent the situation is. Like these are temporary foreign workers and these are seasonal agricultural workers, but, but the system in place down there, whether it's formal and out of the open or a little bit behind closed doors, is stubbornly it's just there. Canadians, generally speaking, in big cities far away from Leamington, don't like to talk about as something that, that exists. You know, it's when we talk about undocumented workers and the debate over illegal versus irregular migrants, that's an American thing. Or maybe something we talk about at Roxham Road in, in Quebec, which is this flashpoint of asylum seeking. Uh, but we don't talk about these places often, except during spikes of Covid and the early pandemic, when migrant workers are in the, are, were in the middle of, of, that crisis. We don't talk. We don't still talk about it.
2: I think the note of, like, this is just a problem that a lot of Canadians don't even see if you're not somebody who knows anyone who's in a situation where they're trying to, you know, navigate these, like, difficult pathways to enter Canada. If you're not somebody who lives in an area where there are a lot of either temporary foreign workers or, in some cases, undocumented workers, it's, like, almost a problem that's invisibilized. And so people just, like, don't consider it. What are some misconceptions that people have about what giving undocumented workers status in Canada would look like or what, you know— Basically, like, why is it that we're so allergic to having this conversation?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it probably just comes down to good old fashion. North American settler colonialist uh, xenophobia and uh, racism and all those things which is I guess probably part of the reason we don't like to talk about it. it really is antithetical to the Canadian reputation that everybody whether or not like you know thinks they believe it on their day to day or would say that they're a huge proponent of we've all been fed our entire lives and so don't think that that applies necessarily but like in my experience the fact that and this document really shows it is that we still talk about immigration policy we talk about immigration only ever so tied into production and labor. Immigrants, migrants, undocumented or documented are looked at, like, what can they produce for us and not active members of our communities, not people that we should just care about inherently for being, like, all of these sorts of things that we don't offer supports to outside of, yeah, we can talk about uh, education accreditation and, you know, job transfer skills and level up and whatever, but in terms of, yeah, actually making sure that, like, they can be active members of our community in such a way that they're valued beyond their production, we have like z- almost zero policy and, and conversations about that. And so I think the misconception gets piled on top for undocumented people because there's already there's this subconscious belief that like immigrants are only valuable here if they produce for us, if they're working. And somehow if they're undocumented that they're and then they're illegal, that then they're Worse, because we don't know how much they produce or they're doing this in bad ways. And it all gets trapped up in that really awful, horrible narrative that is ultimately just just racism and xenophobia that I think is deeply entrenched in Canada, in Canadian immigration. And I have yet to see any sort of policy suggestions from the federal government, at least, that really addresses that.
2: Recently, the Quebec immigration minister said that, which is not true, but basically said that 80% of immigrants to the province of Quebec go to Montreal, they don't work, they don't speak French, and they don't adhere to the values of Quebec society, which is like patently false, that 80% of them like don't learn any French and all move to Montreal and like whatever Quebec society values are, like, you know, that's a whole other conversation. And then when Francois Legault tried to kind of walk it back and, and rein in the immigration minister, he still referred to the notion of like admitting too many immigrants to Quebec as like suicidal, which is just goes to show like the way that these people are spoken about so derisively. So I think the note of valuing these people for more than what they can produce economically is like a very important one. But I think also critically, like it is just also true and is ignored by a lot of politicians that like there are certain sectors of the economy that simply would not function in Canada properly without temporary foreign workers. I don't know which Canadians are going to end up working on farms uh, if we don't have these temporary foreign workers in some cases uh, working in agriculture. So obviously that's not the only reason that we should value the humanity of these migrants. Like that's you know, these are people that have worth and deserve to be treated properly by the Canadian government, irrespective of what they produce. It's so, I think, easy for certain politicians and for certain people that take up space in conversations about immigration to ignore, like, the actual very real contributions that these groups make.
1: Yeah, I I think that's—it's really interesting that you brought up Quebec. And I I think the immigration debate is very different there. We—in English-speaking Canada, we are sort of self-identifying as a multicultural society. And I think most people— You know, according to opinion polling, I think that's a good thing. And I think that we should have immigration and high levels of immigration because we do. If you look at 2015, when the Liberals came to power, we brought in something along the lines of 275,000 immigrants. And the plan for this year is 430,000. It'll be 450 next year. And something that is fairly rare in the Western world that none of our major parties in English Canada are arguing for lower levels of immigration. And even Pierre Polyev, who has sort of been described as a populist, which he is in some ways and I think not in other ways, but his main immigration thing that he talks about is getting credentials recognized. Life is obviously harder for immigrants and we should be, uh, I think, we should be compassionate about that. And as much as we benefit the economic contribution, I I agree with Riley that we should value multiculturalism for its own sake. But I think that, you know, at the risk of being an optimist again, Canada's in a pretty good spot compared to the rest of the world. It's not perfect, and of course we should improve it, but relative to the U.S. or relative to any country in Europe that has a far-right party that's making gains in their parliament, Canada's actually in a pretty good spot.
2: A rare bit of optimism. And I want to kind of, like, pull a little bit on that last thread that you mentioned, Stuart, of Canada not having perhaps as much of a big, like, anti-immigration sentiment among parties that are actually getting members elected to the House of Commons, as we see perhaps in some other countries. You know, obviously, that's not true in many places in Europe. In Italy, we just saw that in the new kind of most recent elections held there, like there was actually like a very far right government elected. Obviously, of course, in the U.S., we see a lot more like aggressive anti-immigration sentiment. And we did see, I particularly remember in the PPC's sort of first big election campaign in 2019, that there were billboards. I remember like driving around in Halifax, seeing this giant billboard with Maxime Bernier's face on it that basically just said "stop mass immigration." So there is some amount of sentiment there. Do you have thoughts on whether this is something we should be concerned about manifesting in the future?
3: It's absolutely true that the the mainstream view of every major political party is immigration is good, and a federal leaders debate that's where they all agree and they all smile. But every year, Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship does a, a like a tracking survey of thousands of people uh, and asks Canadians what they feel about immigration generally speaking and the number of people coming to canada and of course it depends on age and gender and and province and territory and the numbers go up and down all over the country but generally speaking like 30% and um that's a real generalization but let's say it's around 30% of canadians say that there are too many immigrants coming to canada so it's only 30% that means 70% have a different opinion and the plurality is always that either enough immigrants are coming to Canada or there should be more coming to Canada. Uh, but it's burbling there for sure among not tiny amount of people. So the, the sentiment is there. It's But it's also just, you know, it's not a top issue for a lot of voters, for a lot of Canadians. So even if they think there are too many new Canadians around them, they they're thinking about other things more than they're thinking about that. I don't think we should underestimate that it's it's not unanimous in Canada. Like, this is not a, a settled issue. Like so many things in the Canadian mainstream, where there is this broad belief that we identify by certain metrics, whether it's like peacekeeping or universal health care, there's always shades. And on immigration, that is true, I think, even more than other issues.
0: I feel like It's definitely a learned thing from coming from an Indigenous experience in the country where, like, Canadians will also say, especially now in the age of reconciliation more than ever, that they, like, love Indigenous people. They love Indigenous issues. They think it's whatever. And then you scratch the surface just a little bit and you see that, oh, actually, if it came down to you having to do things that, like, you do see as a little bit uncomfortable or you have to give up a little bit of what you understand your rights to, like, the living here is, and and not in a huge, profound way even, and just, like, little ways of, like, should Indigenous people have more money given to reserves for these certain things. Like the amount of times that like people who will like, when pressed a little bit in Canada, I find you realize that the policies that they would support would actually be antithetical to what they say their beliefs are is high in my experience. And I feel like that that could also be Uh, higher as well for um, the case of immigration, where Canada will say we love multiculturalism. Canadians will say, yes, of course, we support that. That's part of our identity. But if you scratch the surface a little bit, you might also find a lot more people than you'd expect who would be perhaps a little bit more xenophobic leaning.
1: (laughs) I think that is so true. And I think what we really need to do, I think Nick's point about that section of Canadians who don't feel great about immigration, but it's like, 15th on their list of issues they care about. What we need to make sure doesn't happen is that it goes up to like third or second or something because that's when, you know, the same thing happened in the US in 2016 where Trump centered the immigration issue and then it became more important to people who had those feelings about it. And I think the thing that worries me the most is, for example, we have a housing shortage. We have healthcare shortages. We have troubles in our hospitals and we're bringing more and more people every year But then you also have Canadians who, you know, maybe don't care that much about immigration until all of a sudden the housing market is worse than it ever was, or healthcare is worse than it ever was, or these other sort of like really important sort of structural issues start bubbling up. And then all of a sudden you have a scapegoat in immigration to blame. So I think a lot of these sort of like state capacity and government issues become, you know, almost existential if you believe in sort of high immigration levels, just be able to sustain that so you don't get that sort of populist uh, explosion.
2: All right, let's adjourn. That's been The backbench. If you're following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you're watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at Backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. Stuart, where can people find you?
1: Find me at thehub.ca or on Twitter at Stuart X.
0: Riley, where can people follow your work? People can follow me on Twitter at Riley yes, no, Maybe, and also at my website, RileyYesNo.com, where I have some of my writing and stuff.
2: And last but not least, Nick, where can people find you?
3: You can find me writing the Ottawa Playbook, so that's at politico.com slash Ottawa Playbook.
2: Some species of young shark will replace their teeth weekly as shark teeth often get damaged in the process of hunting prey. It's a very good thing that sharks don't have to pay for dental care. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Noor Azrie and Tristan Capaccione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thank you for listening.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen.